0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Francisco Blanche, B of A, Head of Global Commodities and Derivatives Research, joins us. What's your take on this? I know You've been writing about Bitcoin here and there for years now, Francisco. Has it now been accepted, widely accepted in the institutional investment
1: community? Um, well, look, I, mean, I think I think uh, cryptocurrencies in, in general and Bitcoin in particular are. Uh, you know, to your earlier question, I think they're clearly uh, they're clearly tokens, and uh, tokens are tokens are commodities. So I, I wouldn't necessarily qualify them as currencies. Uh, currencies are issued by a government. Um, uh, Bitcoin or any any cryptocurrency can be issued by almost anyone, right? So, uh, in, in that sense, it's um, it, it's a bit of an unusual setup. Um, and uh, so, so I would I would qualify that I think I think it's, it's more of a commodity than it is a currency, um, a, a crypto token. Uh, the second thing I'd say is that uh, you know if you, if you think about um, this this particular uh, construct that that uh, Bitcoin has. Remember that 90% plus of the coin is, is held by less than 1% of the account holders. So, so there's a very high concentration of the early um, of the early adopters that haven't really sold. And and again, uh, if we think about supply and demand, you know, it's it's just one of those things that. There's been a flurry of demand, and and frankly, not very much supply because the uh, first of all, the supply is capped longer term, right? And, uh, and 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 that's been the issue. So so it's extremely volatile. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't. I mean, compare it to any other commodity. Uh, the volatility of, of, of cryptocurrencies is is way way higher hey. uh, in most cases.
2: So, Francisco, I, I want to ask you, what do you make though of a year where you've got Bitcoin up more than three hundred percent? here in 2020, and you've got gold on track to have the biggest annual advance in a decade. How do you kind of juxtapose this too? But nothing like to, that. And, yeah, How do you kind of make sense of that?
1: Right. So to me, it's it's quite straightforward. Um, we've had, of course, a flurry of liquidity that's coming to the market from the central banks. Uh, the Fed's balance sheets more than doubled uh, as well throughout the period. So naturally when you inject so much money uh, remember uh we were talking about currency before right so uh currency is created by governments and when when uh, uh the world's uh, most important central bank in the world's largest economy injects so much liquidity in the financial system all uh, assets uh, tend to benefit from it uh, and um and, and that's what we've seen now if you think about um airline stocks uh or you think about mm-hmm. um other assets that have been severely impacted by mobility, which is really what the COVID-19 crisis is about, uh, they've not gone back to previous historical records, but other asset classes that were uh, in some way uh, constrained, the uh, surged, and, and of course, that's included um, commodities like gold or silver, um, and and uh, it, it's also, like I said before, it's, it's uh, impacted, think about um, electric electric vehicle stocks, right? I mean, those have have also taken off in a huge way. So, so I think liquidity has been driving this this enormous divergence in in, in asset values that we've seen, um, because central banks, with the Fed at the helm, were trying to support the economy and particularly the financial markets.
0: So, what happened then um, to oil? I mean, we were looking at sixty dollars, Francisco, at the beginning of the year. It dropped to negative 40, and now we're trading right. at 47.89. I can take the negative drop as a, as a blip, um, right. a giant, possibly orchestrated fat finger, but nonetheless, it's a commodity priced in dollars that has dropped um, 20% in value, why?
1: Well, so, so the, the oil story, uh, as I mentioned earlier, right, is, is very linked to the idea that COVID-19 is a unique kind of recession. Normally recessions are cyclical, uh, in the sense that we see industry uh, slowing down meaningfully, and we tend to see some kind of financial event driving them. Uh, this time around, COVID nineteen just literally shut us, um, you know, shut, shut, shut the global economy down in a meaningful way, and um, and mobility collapsed. Suddenly, we couldn't go anywhere. In fact, today I, I, I'm at home rather than being at the studio with you guys as I would normally do on a on a regular day. Um, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't. Uh, been on a plane now, I guess, for the longest period of my life. I mean it's probably right. nine, ten, ten months now without kind of hopping on a plane. Um so uh, you know that that mobility is what's taken down uh the demand for oil uh by as much as thirty percent in the month of April. Um and and when demand fell by thirty percent, which also probably linked you know, think think GDP also fell by about that number, uh oil prices collapsed and uh and then to your point, there was a bit of a fat finger there, but, uh, but also uh, also at some point OPEC started to cut back production. Uh, we reopened the global economy in, starting in May and June and, and things picked up. But but now in the last couple of days, we've gotten a little nervous again because of this new virus strain so, going on in the UK, right? So anyway, go hey, ahead.
2: Hey, Francisco, just got about 15, 20 seconds. So what's your projection? Give us a quick price target for oil in 2021.
1: So we, we see we see oil getting to sixty dollars a barrel uh, by the second quarter. So we are we are constructive. We think the economy comes back. Obviously, we have to control this uh, UK strain in the first in the next couple of months. So it could be a little patchy right. uh, in January. But I think once we get to June, we're going to be in a much better shape. Uh, those vaccines are going to really help think, get things moving. Uh, no pun intended.
2: All right. Going to leave it on that note. Francisco, thank you so much. Have a great and safe new year. Francisco Blount, he is Bank of America, head of Global Commodities and Derivatives Research. uh, Joining us here.
0: Lara Rehm, let's bring her in right now. FS Investments, chief U.S. economist. And let me start, Lara, with the devil's advocate, uh, with the other side of this, Um, at what point does the US spend too much money? At what point do, uh, does the US take on too much debt? Because there isn't really a magic money tree, right? I mean, at some point you just can't keep handing out checks to American citizens.
3: Well, I think if we've seen anything, it's that if we wait too long and we wait until the economy is really, you know, experiencing it's a really cataclysmic disruption that we then when we're when we're performing legislation under triage we can at that point do too much or be I think less targeted the real point is that if you can enact legislation earlier you can afford to be more thoughtful and you can be more targeted with it and that just diminishes the weight It diminishes the need for these multi-trillion dollar huge packages I think the point that Carol made is, is really important, which is that, you know, right now we're we're still we're seeing these delays that really risk, I think, making the need so much more inflamed at that point. You're trying to just fill a bigger gap. It gets more expensive. So doing less earlier really gets you further.
2: Well, and the thing is, Lara, this is all about, you know, this is going to show in the economy in terms of the economic growth figures, which are always lagging, or a lot of them are. But I mean, there's another story on the Bloomberg. Millions of Americans are calling in sick, stunting the recovery. The whole idea is, you know, there are a lot of lost days and that plays into productivity and that plays into economic growth, that it's even stunting that. So layer that on top. You got to be a little bit worried about growth going forward.
3: I I think that's right, Carol. You know, we and and here this is kind of getting deep in the weeds on the employment numbers, but you know, you look at initial claims and to your point, they've, they've come down, but boy, relative to any other recession, they are so elevated even now, months into this recession. And you add to the fact that so many people have left the labor force. We're gonna get the big monthly payroll numbers next Friday. But one of the things that we don't usually pay attention to is that participation rate. All that is expressing is how many people are actually out there looking for jobs. We've seen the unemployment rate come down to less than 7 percent. But buried beneath that is the fact that an awful lot of people and probably because schools aren't open. You can think of a lot of reasons why or people have taken their elders out of nursing homes. You can think of a lot of reasons why during this pandemic, people have decided to stop looking for work. So that lower participation rate, little things like that, you know, you cut a 10 million here, 10 million people there from the labor force. And when you think about what gives us growth, what gives us GDP, you know, those numbers just may not be quite as strong as a lot of people are expecting, you know, into the end of 2021, or as we get that traction back online after the vaccine.
2: So Lara, Do you think companies are going to hold off in terms of hiring, even if they expect demand to start coming back? I just wonder, how hesitant do you think companies are going to be until they really see significant demand in 2021?
3: This is going to be a critical thing that we're watching in those monthly payroll numbers, because what we've seen is a really big decline in temporary unemployment, but we've started to see permanent employment rising. So, I think something fascinating about COVID is that it's really accelerated so many trends that we saw prior to the pandemic. They've just really accelerated rapidly. And one of them has been this difference between temporary and permanent employment. And so in a normal recession, this is not a normal recession, but in a normal recession, permanent unemployment really continues to rise throughout the recession. And it keeps rising afterwards because companies may bring back permanent or temporary, excuse me, they may you know, be more likely to kind of hire people temporarily, temp workers filling the gaps, but they're less likely to bring on that permanent employment. So in that regard, what we're seeing now is actually playing out more in a more normal cycle. And that's troubling. You know, we really need to see companies bringing back those permanent jobs that offer household job security. That's at the end of the day over long cycles without stimulus checks. That's what really burnishes the household confidence, the consumer confidence that drives our economy.
0: Uh, You know, the thing most troubling to me has been people close to retirement or or planning to retire now, they're not getting any kind of return. And you mentioned in your note, one of my favorite books uh, from childhood, the giving tree, it's so depressing when it's completely cut down. Um, And and you compare this to the fixed income market for 2021. Uh, What do you see happening with the 10 year, for example, next year?
3: Yeah, Uh, you know, so many people are looking ahead with really optimistic growth outlooks for 2021. And I think, you know, a lot of the forecasts around 4% are very, very reasonable, uh, particularly in the second half of the year, if we really get the distribution of the vaccine effective but here's the real problem right long-term interest rates are still i think going to be trapped at really very near these historic lows because on the other side of it you're going to have continued quantitative easing from the fed you're going to have continued i think uncertainty about the direction of inflation a a lot of people calling for this big reflation play next year right i think are really getting out over their skis the reality is although
0: you had you had you, you had that to some extent now. And this is really, Lara, what the Fed is trying to do and, and the ECB and everyone else. This is financial repression, right, because they're pushing uh, even retirees out the risk spectrum. So to get back to my mom, you know, she can't be holding fixed income right now at 60% eight i can't remember exactly how old she is but you know she's got to be in equities and this is uh, you you write about the liquid courage the fed is enticing these people to go out there and at least in 2020 it's been thankfully a good a good move
3: oh absolutely and i think you know the, the point of of the the idea of the giving tree right this tree that was fixed income that gave us growth and income and diversification you know throughout the decades Back when interest rates were 7% and 5% and even 4% in the 2000s. You know, it's 2010, we really saw that fall flat. At the height of growth that we had in 2017-18, rates were 2.5%. You know, now you're less than 1% on the 10-year. The Barclays Ag is, you know, 1.25%. At the end of the day, you need more. So I think, you know, this is an asset class with trillions of dollars still in it. Uh, Or related to it. So investors, I think this theme of trying to get more active around income is just going to continue trying to push further out the income spectrum, lower duration. All those things are going to keep going in 2021.
2: Lara Raine, we will be talking with you, no doubt, in 2021. Have a happy new year. Stay safe. Lara Rehm, she is FS Investments Chief U.S. Economist. Let's see what Dr. Deborah Fuller, University of Washington School of Medicine microbiology professor. This is her world. Uh, See what she has to say. Dr. Fuller, uh, nice to have you here with Matt and myself. When you look at the headlines that are out there on a daily basis, it's kind of hard to keep up. It's hard not to be overwhelmed by what's going on when it comes to covid. Uh, What is top of mind for you on this Thursday morning on this New Year's Eve?
4: Well, at the top of my mind is as quickly as the news is changing, so does the virus. Uh, as we know, this new viral variant that came out at, uh, increases transmission in the population. That's at the top of my mind because that really does impact things like how quickly we can get to herd immunity and, uh, of course, raises the concern about uh, increasing the number of the cases in the uh, worldwide and uh, the burden in our hospitals.
0: How quickly can we get to herd immunity, Dr. Fuller, can you give us maybe a best case um, scenario, worst case scenario?
4: Well, as I mentioned, that keeps changing. Herd immunity depends on two different variables. That is the level of vaccine efficacy, which is quite high for some of these vaccines, and that's a good thing. But it also changes, it depends on the transmission rate of the virus, which, uh, because of these mutations, can undergo changes. So we've heard anything ranging from 60 to of the population will need to get vaccinated. And how quickly that happens will depend on how quickly we can roll out these vaccines and uh, get them distributed in in addition to getting new ones licensed, like we're seeing this this, uh, uh, AstraZeneca just recently, uh, just got their vaccine licensed in the UK.
0: One of the other things that really worries me uh, as someone who's had Lyme disease like four times, what are the long-term effects, or what do we know now about the long-term effects of this disease?
4: Well, there's, uh, there's uh, two, two, different, two different things there in terms of long-term effects of the disease. That's something we're going to have to be studying for quite some time. But in terms of long-term effects of the vaccine, that's uh, a lot of new data is starting to roll out that we're seeing. Um, that, as we study the vaccine further, that uh, immunity seems to be lasting uh, potentially up to six months after immunization. That's as far as we've gotten so far. Hopefully it will last at least a year or more so that when you get vaccinated, you can uh, at least anticipate being immune to this virus for, for ideally a year or more.
2: Right, because we need that because it's going to take, as we know, Dr. Fuller, a long time for everyone to get vaccine. And right now we heard from President-elect Joe Biden. He's worried that it could take years at the current pace that we are. So we need that. Having said that, I want to go back to the variant because that's the one thing that just kind of unnerves me every morning. Could we get to a variant that doesn't respond to the current rounds of uh, vaccines?
4: Well, if a virus can, it will. That's something I learned a long time ago when I was studying virology. Uh, It is quite possible it could attain uh, mutations to be resistant to our vaccines, but we don't anticipate that will be easy for the virus to do because the vaccines were designed uh... with this in mind with the fact that viruses do undergo mutations and so it will be very difficult for this virus to uh, get the number and the right types of mutations to be able to evade uh, vaccine immunity with that said it's possible and one of the good things about the types of vaccines we're developing here the rna vaccines and now these adenovirus based vaccines are very quick to update if, if needed, if a new variant comes out that is uh, resistant to our vaccine-induced immunity.
2: So I have to say there's a story, um, we were talking about it in the break before we got going, you, um, me and Matt, and it's saying, uh, it's by our Bloomberg News team, China making it harder to solve the mystery of where COVID began. How important is it that we understand where this COVID-19 virus specifically came from to make sure that we truly understand it and can kind of plan for others? To come because others will come, right? Absolutely. Uh, this is something about uh, viruses. They they do transmit.
4: Uh, one of the most common ways that pandemics will start is a transmission from uh, an animal reservoir, from a um, particular animal into humans, and understanding how that happens. Uh, that's something that scientists will continue to study. We're still picking at that and probing at it because it's so important. Uh, to learn about that, to be able to uh, hopefully predict the next one and, and stop it before it gets to this point.
2: Dr. Fuller, one of the conversations I'm having with everyone in my world is, listen, I'm just exhausted by this year. I know I have to be good because we're, we can kind of see the finish line. Having said that, it's still going to be probably a cup, couple of rough months in terms of uh, our economy still being shut down. What do we need to remember as we move forward, more people get the vaccine. Those basic things like social distancing, masking, that's going to be with us for a while.
4: That is going to be with us for a while, but hopefully with these vaccines coming out, we're going to start to uh, progressively see an impact, hopefully in reducing uh, the number of hospitalizations. We might see that earlier on, uh, even as it takes time to distribute these vaccines and get that into enough people. And during that time, we all have to work together. This is now in the hands of of the people the population each and every one of us we need to do our part in getting vaccinated and and uh keeping to the practices uh, the social distancing and the masking uh, to to get this under control.
2: Yeah, if I think about COVID and this year, I think one word that comes to mind over and over again is all about community. It's not you know you've really got to think about those around you, your community, uh, in terms of getting to a post COVID world. Dr. Fuller, thank you so much. Have a good New Year, Dr. Deborah Fuller, University of Washington School of Medicine, microbiology professor.
5: Joining us now to talk about all of this and the future relationship with the U.S. and the U.K. is Karen Pierce. She's U.K. ambassador to the U.S. Ambassador Pierce, thank you so much for giving us a bit of your precious time. Ambassador, when you look you. at what comes to in, in 2021, with President Trump now out of the White House, does it mean that it's less likely for the U.K. to, de- to, to get a quick deal with the U.S.?
6: Uh, Well, I don't want to be presumptuous about the Biden administration's policies and priorities, uh, but we believe this deal can be done. It can be done in 2021. Uh, That said, we don't want to set a hard deadline. Much more important to get a good deal with with lots of um, good content. Uh, it It is a good deal. It's a bespoke deal. It wouldn't take too much bandwidth. Uh, to get it through Congress. Uh, and we'd be delighted to work with the Biden administration if there were particular angles. Uh, some people have mentioned Labour, some people have mentioned climate, uh, that they would like to see included. Uh, but it is an interesting deal. It's for the first time, I think, uh, we'll have digital commerce uh, as, as part of its its um, content.
5: So, Ambassador, given where we are, what would be the UK priorities for a US deal, for a deal with the United States of America
6: on trade? Uh, Well, as I say, we've put a lot of effort into what making this deal concentrate on digital commerce. Uh, That's the way of the future. We've also put a lot of effort into small and medium sized enterprises. Uh, Both our countries depend very much on that type of business, Uh, but I think that sector is also pretty crucial uh, for COVID recovery. And another reason to do the deal would in fact be that COVID recovery. We want to send an early signal in 2021 uh, of our confidence uh, in economic recovery across the globe and particularly in the UK and the US.
5: Have you been talking to the Biden team already?
6: Um, Not directly. The transition team have um, a dictum of one president at a time. Uh, They've made it very clear they don't want to talk to foreign governments. And of course, we respect that. And for all the Americans who have been nominated uh, for cabinet posts, they, of course, need Senate confirmation. And so we would not be able to to talk to them. And that's fine. Uh, That's a standard Uh, way that American administrations operate. Uh, Instead, we've talked to a lot of people around the Biden team, uh, and we talk a lot to people on the Hill uh, of both parties. And we do find a lot, I find as I go uh, on the Hill, I get a lot of support uh, for a UK-US free trade deal. And also when I'm talking to governors around the country, uh, there's a lot of interest. Uh, 33% of, um, I beg your pardon, 33 out of the 50 states Uh, have exports to the UK in their top five uh, export markets. So there's a lot of interest in a deal with the UK.
5: Ambassador, I don't believe the Prime Minister Johnson has ever met Joe Biden. Are there any plans for an early meeting?
6: Um, I don't think they have met, uh, though the Prime Minister has met a number of of Democratic uh, contacts very close to the Biden team, part of the Biden team. Uh, And I think that includes, from memory, Uh, the incoming Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken, if he gets Senate confirmation. But the Prime Minister and President-elect Biden did talk on the phone uh, very soon after uh, President-elect Biden declared victory. Uh, I think the Prime Minister was the first European leader uh, to speak to the President-elect. They had a very warm conversation. They talked about a great many things, including uh, the free trade deal. They talked about Northern Ireland and the importance uh, of upholding the Good Friday Agreement, Uh, in Northern Ireland. uh, And they looked forward to working together on climate uh, in particular and on COVID recovery. And the UK will take the G7 chair from the Americans uh, in January. And COVID recovery is going to be at the heart of what we want to do. And we think that will chime well with President-elect Biden's priorities. I
5: I don't know if you were on that call between the two leaders, but what was the chemistry like?
6: Uh, i wasn 't uh, on the call. this was um, handled directly between the two offices, uh, but I have had a readout. I have talked to the uh, Prime Minister. I think the chemistry was was fine, both of them uh, are very affable people. They know the importance of personal uh, relationships. They have a lot in common in terms of what they want to achieve uh, in 2021. Uh, So I think the atmospherics were warm. Uh, They were friendly and both of them agreed that there's a lot to do. Uh, We can do that together. Very important that we work closely together on climate. Very welcome that President-elect Biden has said he wants to bring America back into the Paris Agreement.
5: Ambassador Pierce, what do you see as the the biggest hurdle or, you know, the biggest challenge for the UK-US special relationship? Uh,
6: I think the biggest challenge, to to be honest, is making sure that we see the new challenges coming down the track uh, in 2021 and beyond for for what they are. Uh, And I think particularly of technology uh, in this respect. I think we're now uh, standing on the threshold of, of a major transformation uh, in technology. I personally uh, would liken it to the effect that nuclear uh, had in the 1950s. Uh, and I think we're really going to have to get to grips with that using all our innovation and science cooperation, uh, charting a way to make sure that as we develop this new technology, it develops on lines that do justice to open societies and open markets uh, we don't want for example to uh, wake up one day and find that there is chinese standards on things like ai uh, and cyber uh, that would be too authoritarian we want to have an open model and i think the second um, the second big challenge is the strategic competition from Russia and China, particularly China. Uh, we need to get that right again, so that it's open societies uh, that are seen to thrive uh, and recover from the COVID pandemic.
5: And do you think the UK and the US will actually work hand in hand to tackle some of the challenges that you just laid out?
6: Oh, definitely. I mean, there's a very uh, deep, profound, successful relationship between the, the UK and US that has endured Uh, since the end of the Second World War and, in fact, before that. Uh, And it doesn't depend on individual uh, leaders on either side. And one of the uh, layers of that bedrock, if you like, is science, it's innovation alongside the defence and military cooperation. Uh, But this is not an an exclusive uh, enterprise. There will be a lot of countries We want to work with the great democracies of the world. We want to work with them to ensure uh, that open societies recover from the pandemic uh, and can go on to tackle some of these really big challenges.
5: Ambassador, maybe just as a final question, given we're, you know, towards the end, um, just just 20 days, really, of, of the Trump administration, what do you think President Trump's greatest achievement has been?
6: Um, I think the normalisation of relations with um, Israel from some Arab countries, I think that will prove to be a very important step forward uh, in the Middle East. It's a bit hard at the moment to say exactly uh, how events will unfold, but I think it's a very uh, important achievement, and we were happy uh, to salute it uh, at the time. It provides a basis uh, on which to build to try and bring peace and stability Uh, to the Middle East. Um, I think before COVID struck, uh, President Trump had presided over uh, a thriving economy. That's also uh, something uh, to look back on and and think about how America uh, can restore uh, that level of of economic dynamism after the pandemic. Uh, And I think what President Trump did on the opioid uh, crisis was also uh, very commendable.
5: All right, thank you so much for your time today, Ambassador Karen Pierce, UK Ambassador to the US, joining us to talk about a number of things, Brexit and the US and UK relationship forward.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide.
1: I'm Bloomberg Radio.